Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin campus and beyond. A production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Caspard and Diego Velasquez. Telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of faculty, staff, students, and Brunswick community members. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Eduardo Pazos, who is the Director of Religious and Spiritual Life here on campus. In our conversation, we extend the notion of sustainability beyond the usual confines of environmentalism, activism, and science. In the second episode of Season 2, we discuss spirituality, morality, and philosophies as they touch on the broader theme of sustainability and how ideas greater than ourselves can lead us to leading more well-rounded lives. Here's Eduardo. I can maybe start at least speaking for myself like I come from this from like a not super knowledgeable background and not a particularly religious background so yeah. I guess I'm coming at this from like mostly out of just like as you were saying like curiosity and just like wanting to know and kind of explore I guess um, mm-hmm. that's a really good introduction yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna hop into our first question which is uh, what does sustainability mean to you Yeah, I think a lot about sustainability, and I have to confess that I am not by any means an expert uh, in terms of understanding sustainability from the environmental science perspective. But as a person that does a lot of work around religion and spirituality, I do think a lot about sustainability and in terms of human sustainability. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to be a people that can sustain the efforts towards justice and equality? and righteousness that we have achieved so far. How can we sustain those and how can we continue to sustain them into the future? Mm -hmm. And of course, part of that is to consider what we often think about in theology or in religious language, the idea of creation care. What responsibility do I have to the earth that's around me? What responsibility of care do I have or do we have as a community to take care of this earth that has been given to us? So when we often think about sustainability, it is, yes, environmental, but it is also emotional, psychological, physical, spiritual. Mm. Um, How can I be a person that sustains good efforts and efforts for justice and righteousness that go beyond just good intentions? Right. Yeah. In our conversations about environmentalism and sustainability, I think that we chose... We show sustainability versus environmentalism. One, because this is through the sustainability office. But two, <laughs> yes. because because sustainability is a little more uh, encompassing, yeah. right, than just in a strictly environmental or like ecological sense. Yes, for sure. And yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate how you speak uh, to the sort of broader nature of that. Yeah, and in many ways, that environmentalism piece, that's where I'm by no means an expert or someone that knows a lot about the science of environmentalism. But in terms of thinking of sustainability, thinking mm-hmm. about um, e- economics, thinking about human capital and the role that each one of these pieces have for us as a society, then that's when religion or spirituality can be a really helpful piece. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is also where it's a very intersecting piece to the piece of ecology and environmental mm-hmm. science. Right. I was taking, I, I'm in a history of energy class, and one of our class discussions was about Um, like the potential for, you know, like climate technology to kind of like, I don't know, scrub out carbon from the atmosphere or things like that. And and one of the things that we were talking about was that like, yes, this technology exists, but you need to have like the social structures and like 
sort of impetus to even even get to a point where that can be like implemented within our like society so like cultural and like I don't know just social changes like need to occur to even get to a place where like certain kinds of technology can even like happen yeah um, which I thought was kind of interesting and like se- semi-related to your point about sort of like sustainability from a more like spiritual and, and like cultural yes aspect um, yeah because I mean we can definitely develop um, as much technology as we can potentially think of to kind of clean up the mess that we're making and that's certainly an option and we should be looking forward to that and investing into that. But then the other option as well is, well, what if we stop creating the mess? Or how can mm-hmm. we change the, the, the norms and the structures that we have created around us mm-hmm. to actually live in ways that are taking care of the of nature environment in our society instead of creating a mess out of it and then having to engineer our way out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah. Instead of looking to adapt address the root problem yes mm-hmm. yeah and i think a lot of that in the way that this relates to the work of spirituality and religion as well is that often we have or stem from a culture or a societal construct of not enough right so what how i shop how i consume what i want what i desire what i dream of or envision is shaped by this understanding that I don't have enough and I need more. But where spirituality can be helpful is that it's asking us the question, when when is enough enough? And maybe, do you already have it? Do we have enough for today? Can we leave some for others? Can we share with others? Can we strive not to accumulate as many resources as possible? but just enough to live and thrive today and then be responsible in sharing with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we've discussed a bit about the capitalists. Um, I don't know, like how our world is constructed in this capitalist sense and the implications for that. Could you talk a bit about um, other theologies and other religions' ideas around how we should live? Uh, yeah, so we were talking, when we first met to kind of think about this, we were talking about maybe... Um, some of the things that we have constructed around us, it is this idea that we are supposed to squeeze out resources and capital as much as possible out of the resources that are around us. And as much as we're successful at doing that, then we are successful. And then we've transferred not only success, but worth to that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're only as worthy as how much you can contribute to the squeezing out of capital, out of resources. And I was saying how there's the, the, the famous uh, Descartian understanding of, I think, therefore I am, or I exist. And there's this idea that sometimes our existing or our being is tied in to our ability to do and to think, to opine, to intellectualize, to work. But there are other ways of understanding who we are and the value that each and every one of us has that are independent of of who of what we do and what we think. Um, I was saying yesterday that Descartes coming from a post-enlightenment Christian, post-Christian world is saying that, but maybe a Buddhist would just simply say, you are, you exist. You don't have to think, you don't have to act. You just simply are and have been existing for a long, long time. Maybe someone who has 
a lot closer ties to indigenous or Native American spirituality would say you just simply are and you are connected to the land and you're connected to the hills and the mountains and the rivers because those are also your ancestors mm -hmm. and that's where you are going to end up being. Mm -hmm. So different ways of being and understanding who we are helps us to to reframe the conversation of sustainability because if we can be and exist and if we have what I would call sacred worth just by the matter of fact of being and existing then we're not tying in your worth to your capacity to produce capital out of resources and that really changes the conversation yeah that really changes how we think and approach the world and what we're doing it changes what we call success it changes what we call joy and maybe even allows for joy to be a part of the conversation. Can we be and exist without tying anything else to it? Degrees, zip codes, socioeconomic um, um, brackets. Can you just be joyful and can you share that with others? That kind of really changes the framework as we understand what we're doing here on earth and, and the responsibility that we have with others. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit more specifically about like how like your background has shaped the way you engage with with this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I grew up in a Christian context. I grew up in a specifically a Protestant context. I grew up in Mexico and I am a third generation Baptist in Mexico, which in and of itself is actually quite rare and remarkable. <laughs> Mexico is still a majority Catholic uh, country. Uh, Protestantism has been growing in the last uh, quarter of a century or so. But um, when I grew up, there was not a lot of Baptists and there was not a lot of Protestants around. There was only a few of us. Maybe sometimes I was the only one in the classroom. So we, we grew up, you know, going to church every Sunday and uh, multiple times and reading the Bible and just having this very... A close connection to our church community, but also to the scriptures and, and to preaching and this kind of stuff. So this was just the context where, where, where I grew up, right? Um, but through it, I think one thing that I really learned is that a lot of the stories that were handed down to us, generation after generation after generation of people that have been reading the Hebrew Bible first, and then, you know, the New Testament, the Christian Bible, is that there is a lot of emphasis put on sustainability and environmental care. In fact, the very first story of the Hebrew Bible is the story of a garden. That's how the story starts. And if you read the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation, the story of, of Christianity or the Hebrew Bible starts with a garden and then the story of Christianity ends with another garden and another tree. So you start with a tree and you end up with a tree. And that is the arc of biblical history, of spiritual history, mm. as understood by Christianity. Mm. Sometimes it's so, so there, so obvious that we can miss it. Mm. But when you pause and think for a second, the story for Christianity, the story in the Israel, uh, Hebrew tradition, starts with the Garden of Eden, which is a garden of delight. That's what, that what, Eden, that's what Eden means in, in Hebrew, delight. So there was already an understanding from very early on that our connection to nature was a spiritual connection and was a place of delight. 
And so for me, that has been very formative in the way that I understand myself, in the way that I understand my relationship to others, in the way that I understand my relationship to this earth, right? Um, that we have a responsibility to be good stewards, that we have a responsibility to take care of the earth, to take care of each other, and that we have a responsibility to continue on and to pass down this story for the next generation, just like it was passed down to me. Um, and I think, you know, as, as I've grown and, and, and uh, experienced different things, nature has been a constant reminder for me of the power of, of awe, the power of, of infinity and how small we can feel sometimes. And, and I love that feeling. Um, I remember one time I was backpacking in the Middle East and I spent a night um, in the Bedouin desert um, and the stars, I mean, they were just like so amazing and you can see the Milky Way and, and it was the most beautiful thing in this, in the middle of this remote place. And I was, you know, I didn't have any friends or family there with me. Um, and that was pretty cool. This sense of that I was pretty small and the universe is really large. And I found that to be really spiritual and really beautiful as well. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I think it matters for us to, to, to make sure that we enable beauty for the sake of beauty, because our, our, our bodies, our personhoods need to see beauty. It's, it's inspiring, it's changing, and it can really help us uh, find a way uh, when we might feel a little bit of loss. <laughs> so yeah, you know, th my, tr my tradition, specifically Christian, specifically Baptist, uh, my own experiences, since I lived in Maine, um, you know, I've never lived in Maine before. My wife is originally from Maine, so she's a local Mainer girl. But um, we decided that we wanted to go camping more often. Since we're here, we might as well enjoy <laughs> a very Maine experience. And we've loved that. I'm learning. I'm new to this camping thing. I'm not any good at it or anything like that. But it's been a lot of fun to introduce uh, my family. I have two girls to introduce my girls and my wife and I to introduce ourselves to uh, to being more connected to nature, to enjoying the time out there. Mm -hmm. And for all, for us, all of those are also spiritual experiences, mm -hmm. right? For us to be in family, to to cook a meal together by the fire, to just watch a sunset when you're in Acadia, um, that's a very spiritual thing. That's that's a thing. Those are memories that we're forming that that matter more than just at that minute. Mm -hmm. Those are memories that stay with you, probably for a lifetime. And that's one of the reasons why we do it. So yeah, through through all of that, uh, through my experiences here in Maine and understanding our role uh, in terms of ethics, in terms of philosophy, in terms of um, joy and generosity, I think more and more I'm developing this understanding of can we be both spiritual and sustainable? Can we bring those those two things together? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Can you talk a bit more about the the ethical and, um, as you say, moral and philosophical underpinnings of uh, sustainability in in how you see like spirituality for yourself. Yeah. Um, so when you decide or you or you want to live or try to do your best to live an ethical life, you know, which that in and of itself is a hard question. What does it mean to live an ethical life? I think you inevitably have to ask the question. What is my responsibility and how am I going to interact with the environment around me? 
Um, it is not easy to be in pursuit of, of an ethical life or an ethical standard and be completely not focused on that part of, of the question or, or, or the equation. Um, so I think for me, what I found is that thinking about the ways in which both my religious tradition as Christianity have taught me these virtues um, and these ethical principles, but also thinking of the ways that I can encourage others to look, to look at, at what we're doing, it has been helpful to think of the ways that spirituality plays a role in it. So for instance, we know that science matters, of course, and we know that facts matter, of course, but we also know that stories are just as powerful mm -hmm. as facts to shape culture. And one of the things that we need is imagination and creativity to be able to tell stories and hand down stories to the next generation that are going to reshape our culture and our values to create a more sustainable environment for us and for the next generation. And that's where religion and spirituality can be very helpful. When I'm talking about the story of the Garden of Eden, this is a four or five thousand year old story. <laughs> and here I am telling it again, and you're probably familiar with it as well, because stories are powerful. So I think in many ways, religion and spirituality can be a powerful tool, not for everybody, and that's okay, and it doesn't have to be, but for a lot of people, it can be a very powerful tool to t show us a way to try to live an ethical life, mm -hmm. try to live a, a life that, that, that we ourselves are proud of, that we ourselves want to emulate if we could do it all over again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in sort of the, the climate activism debate of today, we get sort of stuck in the, in the facts and the statistics behind, you know, global warming and climate change and all that sort of thing. And hearing you talk about the these underpinnings of you know morality and ethics and storytelling it seems like there's a good deal of power in in the story and promoting um stewardship you know for the environment and i think uh we're we're, we're interested in in your thoughts around like climate activism and and how and how spirituality plays into people feeling um some sense of drive to to like get involved and especially in this in this particular um, moment and climate, if you will. Yeah, I think there's <laughs> I think there's a lot to um, to emulate and to um, be proud of. I guess with a lot of climate activists, specifically young people who have been involved for the last several years, very heavily involved with this movement. Because I think one of the things that they're doing is that they're reminding us, and in part their youth is part of their story It's in and of itself. Mm -hmm. They are telling us, I am 10 years old, I'm 15 year years old, I'm 20 years old. I have 50, 60 years left of life. So when you're talking to someone who's 20 years old versus someone who's 60, 70, or 80, for them... The, the hope and the vision that they have for the next 50 years is not just project, projections of data down the road. It is the reality of the likelihood of their years in life. They will likely be 70 or 80 years old, right? So I think it's amazing to see a lot of young people involved because they're reminding us that this is a problem and this is a thing that we have to focus on right now, but that has consequences for the many decades to come. 
and that there are people that are alive right now who will be suffering the consequences of action or inaction that we might take on. And I think one of the things that's really important is that you're absolutely right. It cannot be just about the facts. If that was all that mattered, then we would have already solved this issue (laughs) because we have the science, we have the data, we have the models of projection, but that's not enough. We need to learn how to to use imagination and creativity to reshape the stories that we're telling, to make sure that we are working together to envision and create this better future that will be different, right? Because that's the thing. It, It is asking us to change how we understand and interact with the world right now so that we can guarantee a world or a better world for the next 100 years. But there is a value proposition there. So I have to adjust my behavior today so that 100 years from now there is future change, right? So what story is going to be powerful enough, convincing enough for me to adjust the way that I'm interacting with the world today? What values are we going to talk about today? What stories are we going to get excited about today that we can use to encourage change for the next 100 years? In our, in our brief discussion before this um, formal meeting, <laughs> uh, we were talking about the, the, the movement of young people away from the traditional Judeo-Christian yeah. Uh, upbringing. Yeah. And more to uh, Buddhist, uh, sometimes Hindu, sometimes just um, spiritual, and I don't know if I have the entire like, yeah. vocabulary to, no, yeah, to yeah, you're express right. it. Um, how do you how do you see that? Like, play yes. Into, playing into this conversation. In fact, I was just reading a little column on the Orient by our friend Lauren uh, Hickey, who I just has just written about this. So if you have access to the Orient, yeah, yeah, go ahead and check out her column. Um, It's really good. I really enjoy it. Uh, Yes, we know the data is telling us, specifically in the American context, um, there is some of this worldwide, but that's maybe like a different thing, right? But specifically in the American context, we have seen a decline um, of people that identify as religious, and we have seen an increase of people that identify as spiritual but not religious. Um, if you look at the data demographically, young people, much more than older people, are much more willing to identify as spiritual, but not religious. Um, and the shift that we're seeing is specifically from Christianity, maybe Judeo-Christian, but maybe, but maybe more so Christianity, moving away from institutionalized religion and moving into other more Eastern practices, philosophies, like you mentioned, Buddhism, Hinduism or some kind of spirituality in between. Um, I find that move really interesting. You know, I'm an ordained pastor, so I'm not you know, talking about them. This is me. I'm, I'm the establishment when it comes to the Christian church, right? Um, it, I think it speaks to maybe the inability of the church as we understand it today, the Christian church, to connect with the younger generation. I think it speaks to maybe our inaction as, uh, as, as moral, spiritual leaders to engage with topics that younger people are really interested in, one of them being climate change and climate action. Um, and I also think, and I've wondered, and this is more of my idea, I'm not trying to be prescriptive on anything, but I think it might be also a critique of the systems that we have created. Mm-hmm. 
So we have created the, the, the systems that we were talking earlier where your worth is tied in to your income level. Your worth is tied in to your degrees, to the kind of car that you drive, and to the kind of you know fashion attire that you that you can wear. And we soon find out that it breaks down. Even the most expensive car breaks down. Even the most beautiful fashion designer attire goes out of style. And it's not enough. So we're left wondering, well, if not that, then what? So what we're seeing is a lot of people moving towards an understanding or reawakening to Eastern religions and Eastern philosophies as a way to kind of maybe find meaning and purpose. We see this a lot with apps, for instance. Apps like Headspace and Meditation and 10% Happier are really popular apps. They're, they're advertised all over the internet and, and cable. and um, But they're using actually a lot of activities that are stemming from Eastern philosophies and practices. Mm. Mindfulness meditation is specifically a Buddhist practice. Loving kindness is specifically a Buddhist practice. Yoga is a Hindu practice. Now, of course, there are elements of those that are that translate into just a secular context, and I'm not saying that you have to be one to be able to do the other. Mm. But, but I do think that what we're asking is we're finding new and different ways to engage with the world around us where we can think in different rhythms. Because that's the thing about spirituality and religion. They're like the beat of a song. Hmm. And they're telling you how to live, at what tempo to live your life. So when that beat and when that rhythm is no longer working for you, you'll often try to find it somewhere else. And a lot of young people today are finding it in Eastern religions and philosophies and also in Native American spirituality and experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something about that indigeneity. There's something about being reconnected to the, to the plants and to the landscape, to ancestors and stories that are just becoming very, very attractive to the rhythms and temples that we have crafted for us today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like think of my like sometimes I, I think of like I don't know if archaic is the right word but it's like my grandmother was really religious and I just didn't grow up with that like pretty much at all um, yet I still like I would sometimes like jokingly be like why don't you like to ever take me to church parents like why was that never a thing that like yeah. I, like I grew up with like there was just never um, like the sense of community, like when I would go to church with my friends, I'd be like, this is so nice, but I just don't have that. Um, yeah. and in some ways I almost feel like super inspired by, um, like groups of young climate activism, activists who are like sort of creating that sense of community in yes. like a kind of different way, but yep. I don't know. At, at least mm. for me, there's like a sense of community that's being almost like recreated. Totally. That I think is really interesting. And I'm not at all surprised by that because one of the functions that religion has, evolutionarily speaking, is that it has given us a sense of community and a sense of community and meaning that's greater than just, you know, what is the meal plan for this week, right? Asking the, the more bigger questions in life. So historically, uh, religion has been one of the, the, the ways and the tools in which we've done that. Um, 
So when, when we have, maybe for the last 30, 40 years, a group of people moving away from established religion, their need for community hasn't changed. They're just not fulfilling it through established religion. Excuse me. So what we're finding today is that, yes, young people are finding different and alternative ways to find and form community. Uh, political activism can be a part of that. Climate change can be a part of that. I mean, you see it with, think of all the social movements that are defining our generation. Um, Occupy Wall Street, hashtag Me Too, Black Lives Matter, uh, Sunrise Movement, Keystone Pipeline protests, mm. Women's Marches, March for Our Lives. There are so many social movements, even in the last 10, 15 years, that have created because we have this need for community. And we're finding it in part through activism and through um, climate change activism and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Speaking about the text spe yeah. specifically, do you, do you find that um, the text with which with we founded traditional religion and spirituality on, have those, do you see those as like potentially being replaced in a way by this, this form of activism or, or a move towards the Hindu Buddhist uh, spirituality that we discussed before? Or is it, is it, um, is it more based in, in the principles and teachings within like the larger um, idea of the religion? So maybe both. So I have maybe like an analysis to, to give to answer that question and maybe a hope. <laughs> that you know, a personal hope and desire. So, so that, yeah, this is my like scholarship piece and then my activist piece, right? Um, so no, I don't, my analysis is that no, they're not being replaced. I think a lot of the texts are not being studied as much or uh, literacy around religious texts is not necessarily happening as much. Um, we, there is data that suggests that people are, for instance, we know more about Christians in America because it's the majority religion, but there is data to suggest that um, Christians in America are reading the Bible at a lot uh, lesser of a rate than in previous generations, and there is lesser, um, less, lesser uh, literacy around biblical stories and texts and that kind of stuff. My guess, this is just a guess, is that that's probably the case for other religious texts across across the, the globe. Mm -hmm. uh, I think part of part of that has to do with uh, the internet. The internet has really changed how we relate to texts. Um, before the age of the internet, even 40 years ago, 30 years ago, um, there was not a lot of worldwide narratives that could be easily accessible, translatable, and that you can find at a local Barnes & Noble or independent uh, bookstore 40 years ago. The Bible was certainly one of them. The Quran was certainly one of them. The Hebrew Bible was certainly one of them. But outside of that, not too many, hmm. right? Um, but with the internet, now you have every single text available and immediately translatable through Google Translate until from every single language pretty much to English. So I think that is creating more options to interrogate, investigate, and, and understand and study sacred texts. Mm. So yeah, no, I, don't, I think we're moving away from sacred texts. Now my hope, my desire, <laughs> what I wish could happen is, I think sacred texts are really complicated. I mean, I, 
I studied uh, biblical studies. That was my major and uh, and my bachelor's. And then I, I went on to Yale Divinity School, and that's what I did my seminary in, specifically uh, New Testament. So I've been studying and translating religious texts for a while, and they're really complicated. They're sometimes, I mean, both theologically, philosophically, socially, and then they're two, three, four thousand year old texts. There, there's a complication that comes just with the text mm-hmm. itself. I find that fascinating. And I think, I wonder if there's still something that's of value in them that would be important for us to be able to to keep. So not necessarily disregard everything or all of it. Mm-hmm. But are there stories there that are important? Is that story of... So, for instance, when you think of the story of the Garden of Eden, we understand that, one, the Garden of Eden, Eden means uh, delight or pleasure. So there's this story that the divine, that God creates this beautiful garden. um, And then out of the dust, out of the dirt, which, by the way, the Hebrew word for dirt is arama, he creates, uh, the divine God creates this human, and he calls him Adam. There's this play on words there between Adama and Adam. And then, and this is what Ash Wednesday is coming up in, in the Christian world. This is why, if you've ever done that, the saying is, when ashes are put on your forehead, what the priest or the deacon says is, from the dust you came into the dust you will return. From the Adama you came into Adama you will return. Ash Wednesday is all about mortality, yes, but it's also about the dust of the earth. It's about the earth itself being placed on your forehead to remind you in this divine story that from the earth itself we were formed as a people. I find that beautiful. I find that convincing. And I find that important for us to, to retell these stories. And then if you keep on reading when God creates everything, right? God, God ordains for, for um, humanity to be stewards of the earth. So it says that God created everything and God thought it was good. And then he said, now you humans, you be good stewards of it. I'm lending it to you as a piece of stewardship. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to teach us about environmentalism and sustainability. Uh, for those of us that read these texts... We have a divine command to be good stewards of the garden that God created for us. And sometimes we failed at that really, really bad. Again, that's another story that I think we can kind of take in with us. If you look at other Hebrew Bible texts, for instance, um, there is instructions for, for them. So if you had a plot of land, they were not allowed to harvest every single inch of the plot of land. They were only allowed to plot a cir- to harvest a circle around the plot, and they were commanded to leave the corners either for the earth itself, which is this idea of regeneration and rest, or for the poor who had no land for themselves, and they can come in and feed themselves through harvesting the corners of the plots of land. The other piece that they were commanded to is they were commanded the first fruits, which is usually... Um, that, that very first, the first oranges and apples and, and green beans that kind of come out of the harvest. That is not the full harvest, but it's kind of like, like the anticipation of the harvest. <laughs> you were to grab those and you were not allowed to eat those or sell those. 
you were required to give those to the temple and then the temple priests and deacons would share those with those in need. That first fruit harvest was about sharing with those who needed. So there's a lot of teachings in the Bible and the Hebrew Bible and in many other traditions that are teaching us both. I mean, those are sustainable practices, right? Don't, don't exhaust every single inch of the land. That's a sustainable practice. But it's also sustainable socially. Mm. Leave some of it to share with others, with those who are in need. There's this really cool Buddhist story of um, monks who were um, walking around and this one um, monk, he saw a tree and he chopped down a piece of a branch of the tree. So then there was this spirit who lived inside the tree and the spirit comes out and complains to the Buddha and he says, your monk just chopped my child's arm. So then from there on, the Buddha commanded all monks to never chop down a tree because of the belief that someone's spirit might be living there. And you might, you might be doing harm to someone else. And even till today, in Buddhist practices, monks often will only eat once. And what they do is they wake up in the morning and they go around their community or community members come to them and they bring gifts. And you bring, maybe, you know, you're cooking, I don't know, rice and beans for, for lunch or for dinner that day. So you make an extra portion that you're going to share with the monastery. And you bring that to them and then they take it from you. And monks are only allowed to eat from the gifts that they receive and once a day. Mm-hmm. That's it. They exist not to work to produce but to focus on other things and they live out of the generosity of the community around them. In the community around them sustains them because they believe they're doing good work. The work of meditating, the work of thinking, the work of talking, the work of listening, the work of existing. Mm -hmm. Just being. Just being. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of text and a lot of ways in which Uh, communities and spiritual communities throughout the world, throughout the ages, have been teaching us about this idea of sharing with others, this idea of taking care of the earth. In the Hebrew Bible, every seven years, the seventh year, the earth had to rest. You were not allowed to harvest the earth. You were not allowed to plant from the earth. It had to rest. And then every seven, seven years, the, the year of Jubilee, The 50th year, it had to rest again. So the year 49th in the 50th year, you were not allowed to harvest your land. Talk about sustainable practices, right? That's a three, four thousand year old sustainable practice that has been handed down to us from a long, long time ago. Mm -hmm. A directly applicable. Yes. You know, you take that from the text. Yes. Just take that from the practice and boom right (laughs) yeah and this is before we understood science and um, molecules and carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen so i don't know specifically how applicable that is to the science of you know planting corn or wheat and right as we talked about like the science that's not what it's about exactly it's the idea of can you establish for yourself a community because what happens that seventh year Really, one or two things are happening. One, every year that you're harvesting, you're saving for the seventh year. And or every year that you're harvesting, you're sharing with your neighbors who are resting. And then the the year that you rest, maybe your neighbors share with you. Mm. Sounds a little bit like a 
crop share agreement, like a community crop share agreement. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to hear if there are any like traditions that sort of extend this idea of like being generous to your neighbors and your community members and extend that like to the literal um, like animals and plants around like like if that that sort of like because because I'm seeing this as like there are just practices that are inherently sustainable but if there is this like notion of like um, sort of like giving the same value as like the value that you give to your neighbor to like the literal environment? Yeah, there is a lot of different options and a lot of different ways. Um, so let's start with one that we've already talked about. In the Garden of Eden, a lot of people actually miss this. When uh, the divine with God creates Adam and Eve, uh, God commands them to be vegetarians. <laughs> if you read the stories, it is not until Genesis 9, so nine chapters after the beginning of the Bible, that they are allowed to eat meat. But for the first nine chapters of the biblical Hebrew, of the Hebrew uh, record, they're they're all vegetarians. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I find that really interesting. That somehow, and that's right there, it says that God allows them to eat of every plant and of every fruit, and that's what they're going to eat from. And then it's not till till after the the Noah's Ark story that the introduction of eating meat and animals is allowed into their community. So that's an interesting one that I think yeah. immediately, immediately. But of course, in a lot of Hindu and Buddhist traditions, um, eating uh, vegetarian has been um, very much present. Again, because in Buddhist or Eastern understandings, um, life is not just like one you get just one shot at it and then you, you're born, you live, and then you die and that's it. But there is this excuse me, cyclical belief of reincarnation. So you get reincarnated into other animals around you. Um, so that's why there is this, this extra belief of um, having to sometimes just eating uh, vegetarian meals, right? Specifically in Hindu communities. Not everybody, and I'm not saying that you have to or you don't, <laughs> but historically that, that, that has been the case. Um, there is this Catholic, and I'm, I'm getting confused now, So, but I think I'm pretty sure it's uh, Francis of Assisi, who used to, he quoted this poem, Brother, Son, and Sister Moon. And he's famous, one, for understanding the sun and the moon as brothers and sisters. Mm. And two, because he would um, he would preach the gospel to the animals in the forest. Because he believed that it was important for him to share God's love with all the animals mm. of the forest. Um, and in fact, till this day, he's the patron saint of animals. In the Catholic tradition, if your cat, if your dog, if your parakeet is sick, you pray to hmm. St. Francis of Assisi to help you to find healing for your animals. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so it has been present throughout different communities. Hmm. Even to this day, there's a lot of communities that are vegetarian. Usually Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarian. A lot of people in the Jewish faith are vegetarian. Hindu and Buddhist practitioners are vegetarians, of course. Well, we'd love to... Um, bring this back to Bowdoin. Yeah, so, yeah, two, yeah. Two questions. We haven't talked about Bowdoin at all. <laughs> Sorry, that, that, that was my job, and I failed. No, no, this is good. We we uh, appreciate being able to extend it past past these boundaries, um, get people thinking about and ourselves thinking about yeah. other things that other than our immediate surroundings. Yeah. <laughs> so that's um, specific to Bowdoin, though, um, could you talk about the nexus between environmentalism and student life? Um, here on campus, uh, and maybe 
maybe talking about your your work with the nexus of sustainability and yep. and spirituality. Definitely. Um, so this is my third academic year here at Bowdoin, and three years ago, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but Bethany Keisha and I connected, um, which are the folks over at the sustainability office, and we we were having this conversation around the fact that um, that there is an office of sustainability and an office of religious and spiritual life, but historically they had never worked together. And I think in general, that is very often the, the way that some of us see it, right? We see the work of environmentalism and the work of going to a place of worship and we don't connect them at all. And we all thought that there was definitely an opportunity to create different narratives and to create a different narrative on campus where you don't have to do both, but you, where you can if you want to, or you could explore it if you wanted to. So at that point, uh, the Office of Sustainability and my office started working together and we devised what now has become the annual Spirituality and Sustainability Dinner or Dinner Series. The first one included, we brought in some nuns uh, who are really amazing Catholic nuns and they had gotten arrested because they were protesting nuclear armament in the U.S. So I think the story goes, they, they jumped a fence or they broke into this um, nuclear repository and planted tulips <laughs> inside of the nuclear repository. <laughs> and of course, they were then arrested. Um, and I think to myself, one, that is not usual, the usual conception we have of religious people. And two... It was a really big wake-up call for me because, you know, we can sometimes think of ourselves as people that are really involved doing really good work, but, I mean, they were doing the work, right? <laughs> they were really being out there. They were jumping the fences. They were jumping the fences, yeah. They were not just, you know, complaining about it to their friends like I do most of the time. <laughs> So that was a really cool piece. So they, yeah, they came to campus and they had dinner with us and they were just an amazing, there was two or three of them and that was a really cool um, moment. And then we did it again last year and we had a conversation with the attendees. And this year we're doing a series of conversations and right now we're actually in the work of trying to find out a group of people or practitioners that can come and, um, and be our guests for maybe one of the dinners because we're going to have two or three dinners for this semester. Uh, we already had one last week or two weeks ago. Um, and uh, for the first dinner that we had, we had the conversation as well. There was uh, a professor of science from St. Joseph's College here in Maine, which is a Catholic college. But he came and he talked about the way that he sees the intersection of his work as a scientist and as a person of faith. So that was also really cool to hear his perspective yeah. as a Catholic and as a scientist as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so there is at least this uh, continuous touch point that uh, we have between the two offices, the three of us. Um, we just got the book, This Sacred Earth, which is readings on religion and ecology and, and nature and environmentalism. So we're hoping to maybe do something from that, whether it be uh, reading a chapter and having like a group of people that comes together to discuss around it. We're throwing out ideas of can we create a garden, a flower garden, just for the enjoyment, just for the sake of beauty, mm -hmm. right? And can that be part of the work of sustainability? One, carpet sequestration, yes, but then can <laughs> it just be beautiful? Can it just be for us to recharge ourselves? Uh, can we bring 
practitioners and activists that are linked to other communities, Jewish, Buddhist, Native American, indigenous, to come and teach us more about what they're doing. Um, we don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. We can just learn from others. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that, that really helps us do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I see more and more conversations happening on campus around the intersection of spirituality and religion. And I work a lot, obviously, with churches around the area and places of worship. And I see more and more clergy and places of worship that are committed to starting sustainable initiatives and environmental activism and climate change activism initiatives in their own congregations and places of worship. And that has been really cool to see as well, that the the people that are involved in these religious and spiritual communities are also learning from communities that are teaching us the best ways to be involved in things like um, climate change activism and mm -hmm. um, environmental uh, things that we can do. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're very excited for the for the rollout of these, <laughs> these discussions. Yes, so more to come for sure. <laughs> Part of the problem that we find is that as we talk about sustainability. We do a lot here at Bowdoin. Our offices do a lot. As students, you do a lot. As a community, we do a lot. So there is a balance where sometimes doing less is more. And that's okay. Right? We don't have to do it all today. We don't have to have all the best ideas and deploy them this semester. We can wait. We can create a, a long-term view. Maybe create a cycle of, of readings or activities or dinners that we can envision for the next three or four years so that students at one level or another can engage in and out, but in a much more sustainable way that is not just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. That seems like a pretty good way to cap it off. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I hope it was helpful. Throughout the 2019-2020 academic year, we will be broadcasting on Brunswick's own radio station, WBOR 91.1, Mondays from 3 to 4 p.m. Each episode featuring live interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members will be available after the show here on the sustainability website at bowdoin.edu slash sustainability under the green tea tab. There you can also find show notes and description of past episodes. And we're currently looking for new stories to share through the green tea podcast. If you've done work within the environmental realm or believe what you do for pleasure or business touches on the themes addressed within this podcast, please email Marie at mscaspar at bowden.edu. That's M-S-C-A-S-P-A-R at bowden.edu to get in touch. The music you heard in this episode is courtesy of Colby Santana of The Sustainers, who we interview in the last episode of season one. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.